Hello from the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C., and welcome back to the Campus Exchange Podcast. I'm Jeff Pickering, Director of Academic Programs here at AEI, where we connect college and university students with our nation's leading scholars through conferences, seminars, campus events, and this podcast. If you're enjoying listening to the Campus Exchange, be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening and rate and review the show, too, so that others can find it. And if you're subscribed and you're always listening to our show, you'll stay in the know of all the ways you can engage with AEI. Joining us on this episode are AEI scholar and UC Berkeley law professor John Yu and Nikhil Agarwal from Claremont McKenna College. They'll be having a conversation on the 14th Amendment and John's recent book, published this June, titled The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court. Enjoy the show. Thank you, Jeff. My name is Nick Lagerwal, and I'm a senior at Claremont McKenna College studying philosophy, politics, and economics. Uh, today, I'm grateful to be speaking with Professor John Yu, who is a non-resident senior fellow at AEI. Emmanuel S. Heller, Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, and a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution. He has worked in all three branches of government, notably as an official in the U.S. Department of Justice, where he worked on national security and terrorism issues after the September 11 attacks. He also served as a law clerk for Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and U.S. Court of Appeals Judge Lawrence Silverman. He received his bachelor's in history from Harvard University and his JD from Yale Law School. He recently co-authored the book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Supreme Court, with Robert Delahunty. John, thanks for joining me. I'm glad to be with you. And you should have also said in my introduction, I'm a great fan of Claremont McKenna College. I've been many times and always enjoyed it. And I think you guys in particular have a great faculty in constitutional history and politics. I took constitutional law last semester, so I fully agree with, fully agree with you on that. <laughs> so I wanted to start by asking about the Privileges or Immunities Clause. An often forgotten about section of the 14th Amendment, mm. which some originalists, like Justice Thomas among them, argue should be used to incorporate the Bill of Rights against the states and perhaps protect certain unenumerated rights as well. What was the original meaning of this clause? And to borrow language from your book, how was it eviscerated by the Slaughterhouse case? It's a great question, Akhil. It, the Privileges and Immunities Clause, I think, is the true provision in the 14th Amendment that recognizes and protects individual liberties. You wouldn't know that if you read the Supreme Court cases these days. For example, when the court just struck down race-based affirmative action this year in the Harvard case, it doesn't cite the Privileges and Immunities Clause, it cites the Equal Protection Clause. So I think what happened is that in the Slaughterhouse case, as you mentioned, the Supreme Court just a few decades, one decade, I'm sorry, after the passage of the 14th Amendment, the Supreme Court said that Privileges and Immunities Clause really has almost no meaning. It basically means you treat out-of-staters the same way you treat people in your state. Uh, so uh, I think the Supreme Court got it utterly wrong. If you look at the ratification history of the 14th Amendment, the people who wrote and ratified that amendment thought privileges and immunities would be the provision that would guarantee, for example, our right of freedom of speech or a free exercise of religion, our right to bear arms against the states. The Equal Protection Clause and the Due Process Clause, however, have expanded in order to try to fill that gap from the Supreme Court's mistaken interpretation of Slaughterhouse. So now a lot of the rights, for example, the right to abortion, which had been overturned, which was overturned last year in the Dobbs case, that was seen as a provision that provide, created the right to abortion, even though due process is about procedural rights, doesn't talk about the substance of the rights. 
And the Equal Protection Clause is where the colorblind Constitution has come to be located when actually it is rooted more naturally and by original understanding in the Equal Protection, I'm sorry, in the Privileges and Immunities Clause. So how different would incorporation and the recognition of unenumerated rights look if the court had chosen to rely on the Privileges or Immunities Clause as opposed to Due Process Clause as it, as it has done historically? You know, so for the listeners who are not as up on the Constitution as you are, <laughs> incorporation refers to the process of uh, the Bill of Rights. If you remember, the Bill of Rights was actually only written to limit the federal government. So the right of freedom of speech, people may be surprised to learn, only bound the federal government until after the Civil War. So states were free, and some did violate the right to freedom of speech. For example, the southern states uh, refused to allow speech calling for abolition of slavery before the Civil War. So after the Civil War, the victorious North, the Reconstruction Congress, proposes three amendments, the 13th ending slavery, the 14th creating individual rights against the states so that the rights against the federal government and the rights against the states are basically the same. And then the 15th Amendment to eliminate racial discrimination in voting. So this process, because the Privileges and Immunities Clause was mistakenly read too narrowly, incorporation actually becomes quite controversial because people say, I think rightly, well, why does the word equal protection or why does the word due process mean that the free speech clause applies to the states? doesn't seem to mean that. But if you were to say, what's a privilege and immunity of a citizen of the United States? Then you would say, oh, well, that sounds like a list of rights. And then we could go back and see what did the ratifiers of the 14th Amendment believe those rights were. And if you go back and look, you have people in the Congress, when they talk about the language of the Privileges and Immunities Clause, they sometimes read out a list. They read out the Bill of Rights, actually, often, when they say, these are what I think the Privileges and Immunities are. So it would have made incorporation much easier, much less tenuous, less controversial. Uh, and then the second point I'd make, which is a very important point, is that incorporation is as done by the Supreme Court now in this, you know, sort of, you know, half, you know, half, half house way, incorporation is only, only limited to the Bill of Rights, whereas privileges and immunities could be broader than just the Bill of Rights. Maybe the federal government intended to apply greater restrictions on the states in their ability to infringe individual liberties, or maybe even provided some kind of mechanism for the identification of what we call unenumerated rights, rights which are not written down in the Constitution. Because a slaughterhouse, that whole project, that whole enterprise was stillborn. So along with Justice Thomas, uh, Justice Gorsuch in Tim's versus Indiana signaled that he too may be interested in incorporating a section of the Bill of Rights against the states through the Privileges or Immunities Clause. So do you believe the current court would, if given the chance, overturn Slaughterhouse and restore the original meaning of the Privileges or Immunities Clause? I think so. Unfortunately, this is really about counting noses. <laughs> it's really about, uh, I think, intellectually, it is the right view. Uh, but I think you, what you have to do is count which justices are willing to overturn uh, really decades, almost 100 years of precedent, even if the outcomes might be very similar. But to switch, as it were, um, from one 
constitutional provision to another, which would mean a whole bunch of Supreme Court decisions were wrong. Uh, I could see uh, Gorsuch, Alito, and Thomas uh, very interested in that. Um, but I have a hard time seeing Chief Justice Roberts, um, who cares very much about precedent, voting to go along. Um, Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett, you know, they have been willing, as they made clear in the Dobbs case last year and in the Harvard case this year, they are willing to defer to stare decisis, but not as strongly as Chief Justice Roberts. I remember Chief Justice Roberts last year said he would not overturn Roe versus Wade. Um, he, so that's why that's a 5-4 case rather than a 6-3 case. This, in a way, what you're talking about, Nikhil, is a much uh, more sweeping rejection of precedent, even though maybe the outcomes of those cases aren't so different, right? Because even though you might, right, the free speech clause would still apply to the states, but it would have to be done in a different way. Yeah. So you've criticized the doctrine of substantive due process, uh, not just in discussion, arguing in your book that to believe in it is to, quote, entertain a contradictory definition, such as dry water or dark light. However, individuals such as Tim Sandifer argue that the due process clause has its roots in the Magna Carta's law of the land clause, which states that an individual cannot be arbitrarily deprived of their rights or property by law, even if that law is passed democratically. In other words, for a law to be truly lawful, it must not only be procedurally sound, but it must comport with the principles of republican democracy upon which this country was founded and rationally serve the public interest. How do you respond to such arguments? I don't think that's an originalist account of the due process clause. Uh, I think instead that that is a, a justification of what the due process clause has had to become because privileges and immunities was read improperly. If you look at the clause, actually, it's quite, not the clause, the 14th Amendment, it's actually quite interesting. You have three clauses, privileges and immunities, equal protection and due process. Each of those speaks to a different one of the three branches. Due process is clearly a provision that speaks to the judiciary. That's the one that says, that's the one that governs process, right? It says you can't be deprived of your life, liberty, or property without due process. But it doesn't define life, liberty, and property. And in fact, it says basically the government can take your life, right? The death penalty it can take your life as long as the procedures were fair. Equal protection really, I think, and I think there's good scholarship on this, speaks to the executive branch, basically saying once there is a law, the governor, the executive branch can't right, provide the protection of laws to whites, but not to blacks. It has to be equal protection. It's like an equal enforcement of the law, regardless of race. And then privileges and immunity speaks to the substance of the rights, the, the laws. That's really aimed at the legislatures. That's aimed at Congress, it's aimed at the state legislatures to make sure that there's an equality of rights between the federal and state government. I think, you know, uh, Sandifer, libertarian friends of mine, what they're doing is they're uh, defending the expansion of the equal protection and due process clauses under modern doctrine, but they had to mushroom because the Supreme Court incorrectly read the real provision that bears rights. Uh, so, or putting it differently, uh, if Tim or others were told, okay, we're going to actually use the privileges and immunities clause as originally understood, they may not justify a lot of what they want under the due process clause, and they would probably be very happy for that exchange. 
I think Tim, uh, Tim Sandifer, I read another one of his pieces in which he argued that his understanding of substantive due process and the privileges or immunities clause can be reconciled because he sees privileges or immunities in similar way that you would read it, but as substantive due process, as he understands it, is an argument against, uh, sorry, as a, as a protection against irrational laws. So he tries to sort of balance the two. Do you think it's possible to reconcile those two doctrines, substantive due process, and privileges or immunities in the way that he's describing, or is that sort of a cop-out? The issue of irrationality in the law isn't really about rights. I, I, see the, I see the point. It's really about how the judiciary carries out its job. Uh, and as you probably know, during what we call the Lochner period up until the New Deal, uh, the court would strike down laws that had no rational basis. Um, after the New Deal, uh, the court defined rational basis as, basically, as easy for the legislature to prove. This is really a question, I think, not about uh, actually what are rights and their scope. It's really about how intrusive is the judiciary going to be on the other branches of government uh, just in doing its job. Uh, and then I'm, I'm not so sure. I'd have to think about it more. It's not obvious to me that the due process clause itself is the root of a power in the courts to just reject any law it thinks is not rational. Um, although that is what the modern Supreme Court has held in the uh, gay marriage cases. Mm -hmm. So on that topic, so many rights recognized today, including the right to gay marriage, but also the right to sodomy and contraception for married couples, and up until last year, the right to an abortion pre-viability, are covered or were covered by the doctrine of substantive due process. Is there, however, another constitutional avenue through which these rights can be recognized and perhaps might it be the Privileges or Immunities Clause? Well, I think the Due Process Clause just doesn't support these rights. The right to uh, marriage equality, uh, contracept right to contraceptives, right to abortion. But as Justice Thomas says in his opinion, his concurrence in Dobbs, that doesn't mean the rights aren't in the Constitution at all. It just means they might be somewhere else. But since we've never really deeply explored the Privileges and Immunities Clause to see whether they would support these kinds of rights, we don't really have a lot of research and knowledge yet. But that's what we would have to gather were we to switch the bases of these rights. So I think, you know, substantive, and you know, this is not a conservative liberal thing. I mean, there are several very prominent legal scholars on uh, the left who thought Roe versus Wade made no sense because substantive due process makes no sense either. Um, but that doesn't tell you one way or the other whether the Privileges and Immunities Clause would cover that or not. Uh, that's, that's for us to figure out for another day, but we just haven't done it because the court right, moved the analysis over to this you know, unsuitable provision. Mm -hmm. So you clerked for Justice Thomas, uh, who followed a national rights jurisprudence and believed that the Constitution embodies the principles of the Declaration of Independence. However, there are other originalists, such as Judge Bork and Chief Justice Rehnquist, who believe that the Constitution was a philosophically neutral document and that constitutional safeguards uh, for individuals are accepted not because they embody principles of natural justice, but because they were democratically incorporated by the people. Which side of the debate do you fall on? And if it is the Justice Thomas side, uh, where in the Constitution would natural rights be protected? 
So I'm not going to say exactly what I argue with Justice Thomas about, but I don't think I would put myself in the camp that thinks uh, natural rights philosophy should govern how we approach constitutional interpretation. Although I'm not sure Justice Thomas has done that either. Um, he has cited the Declaration of Independence in an opinion. I believe he is the first justice to do that, to cite the Declaration of Independence as you know, informing the meaning of the Constitution rather than just you know, quoting from it like rhetoric, as, as has happened before. But I don't think he's ever gone beyond that. And so I'm probably close. I wouldn't say I'm as far over as Scalia, Rehnquist, and Bork, who thought there were no, um, that there was no f uh, political theory in the Constitution at all, and that it was utterly morally neutral. Um, but I don't want, I don't think, I do think that, I'm sorry, I do think that Bork and Rehnquist and Scalia had a point in that judicial review should not just be an invitation for judges to import their preferred moral philosophy into the Constitution. So the way I think of it uh, is probably the way that the court has decided the Second Amendment cases. So if you look closely at the Second Amendment cases, uh, Justice Scalia, uh, in this case called Heller, and then there was another case called McDonald, and then there was a case last term Justice Thomas wrote called Bruin. If you look at those cases, the court the majority, the originalist majority, admits that you could read the text one way or the other. Maybe there is a plausible case that the Second Amendment only guarantees the right of a militia created by the state to have guns rather than an individual. So what Scalia says is, but if you look at the governing philosophy of that time, mm -hmm. everyone thought that individuals had a natural right to self-defense. Right, this very you know Hobbesian slash Lockean, right, uh, comp social compact theory, um, and so that right to self defense would by nature then have to include a right to have a weapon to effectuate your right to self defense. And Scalia has to admit that that right of self defense itself is nowhere in the Constitution, but it's so obvious because everyone then would have believed it. So that's kind of that's basically how I would use natural rights, not as natural rights today. But how, what natural rights did the founders think, we, what, did, what ones did they think we, we had? Or which ones did the framers of the 14th Amendment think we had? In other words, what were the natural law slash natural rights philosophy of their time? But if someone said, oh, I think natural law today means A, and the founders thought natural rights at the in 1789 meant B, I would only choose B because that's really trying to give effect to the words they chose and used when they wrote and ratified the Constitution. I'm very worried about the idea of using political philosophy of the here and now to infer, I uh, said, to inform our interpretation of the Constitution. If that's true, then what's to stop someone from saying, well, I, I, you know, you may choose natural rights, but I'm going to choose John Rawls. Mm -hmm. On the, on the topic of natural rights, I'm particularly interested in trying to uncover what the original meaning of the Ninth Amendment is. And I know there's some who might believe that the Ninth Amendment is sort of a guarantee of natural rights, of which are just maybe too numerous uh, to include. Do you believe the Ninth Amendment could be a way, could be read in such a way that that amendment protects natural rights, such as, for example, the natural right of self-defense and the natural right of effective self-defense through the use 
off, off an arm, for example? Well, I, you know, as a very, very young student, I think maybe only five years older than you are now, but this was a long time ago. I wrote an article about the Ninth Amendment, actually, and I tried to figure out what did they mean by these rights retained by the people or the states respectively. And so one thing I tried to do is I looked at all the state bills of rights and I looked, tried to see which rights are in those state bills of rights that didn't make it into the Constitution, but which everyone would have assumed were still in there. And the one that was mentioned in almost every state constitution that is not in the Federal Bill of Rights is the right to alter or abolish government. Uh, it seems so obvious, right? That's like sort of the basis of government by uh, consent of the governed. Uh, but it's not in the Bill of Rights, actually, or the rest of the Constitution. So that's how I would approach it. I said, well, what are the other rights at the time of the writing of the Ninth Amendment that the founders would have you know, just all assumed existed? Uh, so I would do that. Again, I don't think the Ninth Amendment, though, means you guys in 2023 think what individual rights ought to be around that aren't in the constitutional text. I still think the originalist approach requires us to look at uh, what they thought existed then. Or to put differently, I don't. I, when I looked at the Ninth Amendment's original understanding, I didn't see any evidence that the founders then thought that the list of rights would change and expand based on what people thought uh, in the future. Uh, now, that's different, I think, from what I found with the Privileges and Immunities Clause. I do think when I looked at the Privileges and Immunities Clause drafting, there is more of an idea there that unenumerated rights of the future could somehow come into the Constitution. But I don't see that. I didn't see that with the Ninth Amendment. Right. Right. Uh, so you've talked about originalism and, uh, you know, you advocated for it in your book as well. But originalists are often criticized for using their methodology as a vehicle through which uh, they can rule according to their ideological preferences, especially in light of the Dobbs and uh, Bruin decisions from last year. How would you respond to these claims and how would you convince people that originalism is still the best method of constitutional interpretation? Well, the problem that critics of originalism have is that they don't really have a very good rigorous methodology of their own. Uh, I, I always actually liked rather Scalia's uh, article about this. He said, I think he titled his article, uh, Originalism, yeah, the, the, he calls it like the, the least worst <laughs> approach to interpreting the Constitution. Uh, but uh, so one thing just inherent in your question, uh, which I reject, is the commentary that many people have, which is that originalism is ideological. Um, I don't think there's any problem with saying the approach is ideological, how could you have an approach that wasn't ideological if ideological means it promotes a certain set of ideas? And the reason for that is because the Constitution is ideological. Right? You wouldn't say, oh, the Constitution itself is neutral. The Constitution itself obviously is ideological. Right? It's based on idea of limited government. It's federalism, separation of powers, you know, negative liberty. Right? The idea that the way you guarantee rights is just by stopping the government from doing things rather than having rights that are positive where the government gives you stuff. So the Constitution is ideological. So, of course, interpreting it properly is going to carry forward a certain ideology. That's different. And I think what critics often really mean is that originalism is political, that it advances a certain political perspective. And that I don't think is true. I think that originalists 
uh, can come to political outcomes in the law that they might actually vehemently disagree with. Uh, Scalia, for example, gave a famous speech at the Vatican where he said, you know, in, as an individual, he uh, believed that the death penalty was immoral. But as a judge properly applying originalism, it's not possible to conclude that the death penalty is unconstitutional. The Constitution directly talks about the death penalty. Um, and I think that's the true test of originalism is does it lead, or any real theory of constitutional interpretation, is that does it lead to outcomes which you or the interpreter may dislike as a matter of policy? So on the abortion question, I'm, I'm happy to say as a policy matter, I would and have in the state of California voted for amendments or legislation or candidates who believe in a right uh, to an abortion within certain limits. Um, but I'm also, I don't think that the constitution properly interpreted creates a right to an abortion. I think the court got it right in Dobbs. Uh, that's, I think that's the real test of whether you're really following a, a rigorous theory of interpretation. And then, right, if you are, then let's compare it to originalism and see which one is better. I mean, originalism, uh, lastly, it really wrestles with the idea of how do you reconcile a judiciary with democracy? And its point is to try to reduce as much as possible the discretion that judges have to import their own personal preferences or what we we're talking about, their preferred theory of philosophy into the Constitution against the will of the majority, which is what they do every time they strike down a law. And so originalism tries to keep their analysis to history and to the consent of the people at the time that the constitutional text was adopted. I think, again, it's not perfect, but I think it's better than all the alternative theories that uh, have been used by the court. Mm -hmm. And now for the final question, what do you know now that you wish you knew when you were in college? So one thing I didn't appreciate until very much towards the end of my time in college, and I like to think I spent my senior year rectifying it, but it's only become much more apparent to me in the years since, is that college is really a, an opportunity, very limited, wonderful opportunity to study the classics, um, to study the greatest works in human thought, right? What, what one professor has called the best that has ever been thought or written. And what college students, I think, don't realize, you know, the college students are like, gosh, we stopped dreaming like a kid. I'm an adult now. I, I have the right to screw up my life. And so what they don't realize is how, what a luxury it is to be able to spend four years thinking and wrestling with the greatest, most important ideas in our, in human history. Because after you leave college, unless you go get a PhD and not many people do that or get an advanced degree, uh, you don't really get that opportunity again. You go to work. And so I think students, sometimes they forget what an incredible luxury it is to offer so many people the chance to wrestle with these great ideas. It's like the ones we're talking about on this podcast episode. And that after you leave college, you may never have that chance again. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Great to be with you. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Our vision for equipping and developing student leaders to renew healthy civic engagement on their campuses is rooted in AEI's history and mission. The American Enterprise Institute was established in 1938 and continues today as a community of scholars and supporters dedicated to defending human dignity 
expanding human potential, and building a freer and safer world. The work of our scholars and staff advances ideas rooted in our belief in democracy, free enterprise, American strength and global leadership, solidarity with those at the periphery of our society, and a pluralistic entrepreneurial culture. If you want to join us in this effort, visit AEI.org or check out the link in our show notes and be sure to subscribe to this podcast to stay informed of our events and opportunities for students. See you next time. Thank you.